0: Natural law and the fall. So in this lecture, I want to begin to think about what was Adam's relationship to the law at creation, right? Before the fall, some people say, well, his only explicit command was don't eat the fruit. If you do, you'll die. So he didn't have the law. All he had was don't eat the fruit. Um... We start to think through that a little bit. So does that mean Adam could have murdered Eve and not been guilty? If all he had, if the only command he had was don't eat the fruit, that's what they're, I mean, we start to kind of push that thinking a little bit. We reductio ad absurdum. We push it out to absurdity. Start saying, ah, that didn't sound quite right. So how do we begin to Think through these things. Well, I want to start by some foundational things, right? We're generally following the canon, but I'm going to use the New Testament to help me interpret the old as good hermeneutics, right? And we're going to talk about the love's relationship, uh, the law's relationship to love. And I think a v- nice simple way to put this is that love fulfills the law and the law fills out love, right? I'll write that down. That's important. Love fulfills the law, and the law fills out love, right? So you can look at Matthew 22, where Jesus talks about the whole law is contained with love, the Lord your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, right? The whole law is summed up in those two statements about love which seems counterintuitive when we hear law especially in american individualized society we think law we think constriction we think um binding we think oppressive right we think yeah, uh, even evil right we can have there's even in reformed theology in the reformed world there can be this libertarian impulse that's, that sees government as a necessary like evil, and laws are oppressive inherently. Right? Well, no, law is expressed in love. Uh, love is the fulfillment of the law, which, as we'll get to later, you cannot merely outward conf- outwardly conform to the law and be obedient to it. There must be an inward posture of love as well. And law fills out love. And by that, I mean, law puts feet on love. What does love look like? Right? It's not very romantic, but I could tell my wife, instead of I love you, I could in one way say, I'm going to keep the Ten Commandments towards you, sweetheart. Right? It's, it's, it's not quite as endearing, but what does it mean when I say I love you? It means, uh, I'm not going to forsake our wedding vows and commit adultery. I'm not going to murder you with my hands, with my mouth, or with my heart. I'm not going to steal from you, or positively, I'm going to be generous to you. Right. So law properly fills out what love ought to look like. You could spin it the other way. What does hate look like? It looks like breaking the Ten Commandments towards someone. I'm going to murder you with my mouth, with my hands, with my tongue, with my keyboard. Right? I'm going to steal from you. Right? I'm going to plagiarize from you. That's theft. Right? I'm going to uh, be greedy towards you and not give you the things that I ought to give to you. So love and law are very connected, which can seem counterintuitive, but is crucial. And I think that's crucial pastorally as well. Right? You can preach the law in such a way that you are like the Egyptian slave driver. Right? You may even mention the word gospel, but you can preach in a legal way. That doesn't have anything to do with love, to where people are just oh, following the law, striving to follow the law, to try and keep their consciences clean and to get the weight of what you're preaching off of them. That's, that's, no, no, no. I want to preach the law and preach Christ in such a way that love becomes the principal motivation for their obedience to the law. You can see the other passages there. Paul says, um, Romans 13, right? When he talks about the commandments, what does he do? He doesn't talk about the uh, ceremonial law or the judicial law. He talks about, he lists out commandments of moral law. He says, love is love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We'll talk about fulfillment later. What does that mean? Play in Greek, uh, if you have or if you plan to read Ross's From the Finger of God, he has a whole appendix analyzing the different senses in which people take plerao to fulfill, right? Uh, it's relevant if you're doing any study on Matthew 5, 17 and 18. But Galatians 5, 14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Right? So we need to remember love and law are related. Love fulfills the law, and the law fills out love. Next, we want to begin to realize that law in Scripture is used in different ways. When you read the word law in the Bible, context is really important, and we need to figure out what does he mean by that, right? When we're not under law, we're under grace, does that mean there is no more law? No, 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 no. Let's, let's think through this. So, we, law can sometimes mean the whole word of God, right? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or seat in seat, sit in the seat of scoffers, but on God's law he meditates day and night. Well, does that mean he thinks about the Pentateuch day and night and that's it? He didn't think about anything else? Does he think only about the Ten Commandments and nothing else in the Bible? No, well, he thinks about God's word. The totality of God's law. Psalm 19 talks about that too, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, and then he gets to special revelation, the Word of God. Law, number two, can also mean the Old Testament. So you can look at John 10, 34. Jesus is quoting a psalm, Psalm 82, and refers to it as law. Likewise, Paul does a similar thing from Isaiah, right? So. Law can mean not merely the Pentateuch, not merely the Ten Commandments. It can refer to the Old Testament writings in general. Law number three can also mean particularly the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Right? You hear statements like the law and the prophets, right? The Pentateuch and the writings of the prophets. Law can refer to the Mosaic era. Right. So we in Hebrews talk about the priesthood has changed. Therefore, the law must change as well. So the Mosaic era is gone. And by that, he means certain aspects of the law. Likewise, we have new laws under the new covenant. Right. So when I, when I teach through some of this stuff in, in church, I'll ask people, was Abraham sinning? By not taking the yeah. Lord's Supper. People start thinking, is it sin for you to not take the, you know, to not obey and take the, the New Covenant ordinances? Well, it would be for me, but I don't, I don't think Abraham was, right? So they, I can see there they have some fuzziness in their understanding of law and aspects of law. So, uh, number five. Law can be used to mean the covenant of works in distinction from the covenant of grace. So, sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Several other passages listed there for you. So, we need to think clearly that the law is used in different ways. Um, that list is adapted from several other places. Um, the Leiden synopsis, um, was helpful there, but you can, there's, it's not original to me. Turretin does similar things as well, volume two. Um, I'll talk about that later. So categories of law, categories of law, uh, moral law. We'll start with that one, moral law. This is God's bedrock, unchanging standard of morality and holiness. It is a reflection of his moral character, and as we said earlier, he doesn't change, therefore his reflection of uprightness doesn't change. Turretin um, does make a distinction that um, is helpful for us to be, if we wanna be exceedingly precise, he makes a distinction between archetypal law and ectypal law. It's not gonna be in your exam, but I can, I'll write those words out for you just so that you have heard of them. Um, It's in volume two, I don't know, first 10 pages of volume two. Turitan, archetypal law refers to God's understanding of law, right, which is perfect, it's complete, it's absolute in every essence. Ectypal law is our kind of reflection of that. So we don't have perfect knowledge of the law. We have an accurate understanding of the law because he's revealed it to us, a sufficiently clear understanding, but it's not a perfected understanding. So he makes this precise distinction. If you get into the weeds of law, doctrine, and arguing with people, that distinction can be helpful, but for most people, moral law is sufficient. Um, Bavinck says that the moral law as such is not an arbitrary positive law, but is grounded in the nature of God himself, right? So, law, the doctrine of law in our spider web is connected to theology proper. If you screw with theology proper, you're screwing with the law. If you screw with the law, you're screwing with theology proper. It's important to know that these are connected. It's not, and this is important too, related to your theology proper. The law is not a self-existent impersonal power independent of God, right? The law is not outside of God constricting him and constraining him. I wanted to love Israel, but the law was out there and it bound my hands, I had to kill him, right? No, no, the law is not this impersonal force that handcuffs God to do something. It's unbreakable, Bavink says, inviolable. It bears its character throughout the Scriptures, and our own conscience bears witness to it. And so the entire so-called moral world order, with its phenomena of responsibility, its sense of duty, its guilt, its repentance, its dread, its remorse, all of these things are connected to the moral law of God, which is why Christ can say he came not to abolish it. I right? can't abolish the law, Any more than you could abolish God and His character. It's unchanging. You came to fulfill it. That's related, what Bavinck was saying there, to our next category of natural law. Natural law. When I was studying Sabbath, at one point I fell down this rabbit hole of studying natural law. It goes and goes and goes. So there's like natural law and legal theory. If you go to law school, you can study natural law. Um, Finnis, I don't remember his first name, but his last name is Finnis, F-I-N-N-I-S. He wrote a book called Natural Law. It's an OUP, Oxford University Press volume. It's the standard kind of entry way into legal theory of natural law. Um It's really good, in as far as defending the category of natural law, it's terrible as to filling out what the content of natural law is. But natural law is in substance the same content as the moral law of God, but it refers particularly to the work of the law of God upon mankind, stamped upon mankind. It's related to being made in the image of God. So it's, in substance, the same as the moral law of God. But it refers specifically to the moral law being impressed upon every being made in God's image. Right? Richard Muller, his definition is given there. You can read that. He gets into detail. Um, We can speak of natural law in two ways. Uh Turretin talks about it in two ways. Broadly, God's laws of creation or his laws over nature refers to his providence, right? So the moon still goes around the earth according to God's commands. Well, yeah, that's his providence. It's not referring to a moral category. Um, that would be narrowly or strictly speaking of natural law would refer to Moral duties being pressed upon us. If that makes sense, of so broadly versus narrowly conceived, broadly is kind of nature obeying God, narrowly refers to us, and moral absolutes, moral work impressed upon us. Sorry, if my penmanship is lacking. My mother jokes that the only reason I got a doctorate is so I could justify terrible penmanship. Um, and I joke that that's true. Um, so, where can we see this category of natural law? What do we, How do we think about this? Well, very practically, you know, I, I spent some time, I spent a summer as a missionary in Indonesia. I was walking in these jungles on the island of Borneo, and, you know, it's like National Geographic all around me. And I, If I walked up to some of the guys in the jungle there and I punched them in the face, they knew that that was wrong. I didn't have to convince them that that was wrong. If I stole their chicken, they knew, they knew to be upset. Right? I don't have to, generally speaking, we don't have to explain to people the major categories of right and wrong. Thank goodness. Right? Sometimes you do. In America, you do have to defend, like, homosexuality is wrong. Right? You have to argue against that. Just, you know, God judging our nation, it seems. Um, but generally, the categories of natural law, right? We see in scripture, we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, talks about the consent of nations and the evidenced moral standard that's pretty much doesn't have to be argued about. You don't have to tell people that theft is wrong. That murder is wrong, that slander is wrong. Now, what they what to do about it, that we have to argue about. Right? If somebody's convicted of one of these things. But generally speaking, thankfully, we live in a society that assumes that life is worth, at least outside the womb, is worth protecting. Um. And as frustrating as our society may be, I'm glad that we have what we do have. As far as laws that generally uphold several external acts of obedience to the second table of the law. Um, On the next page, we can see, you know, we can look at natural law as a category by looking at the absurdities that result if we deny it, if we deny the category, right? If there was no such thing as natural law, a law binding on everyone, then everything would be equally lawful, Turitan says. Right? It'd be chaos. That's that's ridiculous. We can, you know. And he says we can even look at the pagan philosophers. Right? Cicero says, we are born to justice, and that right is not established but by opinion, but by nature. Just fascinating to sit and stew on that for a little bit. But thankfully. Even pagans will agree that there's some measure of right and wrong, right? Thankfully, they're not consistent with all that they espouse about morality, right? Because if they were, you know, we could, oh, your child uh, is first string on the basketball team, my child second string, and if it's survival of the fittest, well, I'm going to kill your child so that my child could survive and do better. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. They say that's ridiculous. So, it's, well, I'm just I'm just using your logic, you know. Natural law. We'll get to that in a minute when we get to creation. Another category that's relevant to law: positive law. That's where we get back to Abraham taking the Lord's Supper. Was he sinning? No. No more than we're sinning. By circumcising or not circumcising our sons. We're not, that's, that's, it's, a, it's not a law for us now. These laws, positive laws, are tied to a specific covenant. They're not inherently evil or good. And they're tied, they're, they're given by, uh, out of God's own free will out of his own predisposition. So, eating fruit is not sinful, inherently. But Adam eating that particular fruit, given the positive law that he was under in the garden, that was sinful. Right? Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit CBTseminary.org.